Hey, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Background YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On The Margin. Today, I am joined by the CEO and founder of Blockstream, Mr. Adam Back. Adam, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I appreciate it. Um, you know, we're talking at a, a very interesting time, I would say. There's obviously a lot that's going on in the world from a geopolitical standpoint, from a macroeconomic standpoint. Uh, and of course, uh, Bitcoin is starting to uh, heat back up a little bit after you know, 18 months or so of sort of bear market winter. Um, and where I'd love to start in this conversation actually is, I know you spend a lot of your time on Blockstream and, and Bitcoin, but I know you're also a very uh, worldly guy as well who has sort of views about the macro. So maybe just starting from your, your 10,000 foot vantage point, what are some of the things that you're pl- uh, paying attention to in the, in the macro environment? And then maybe we can transition that into your view on, on Bitcoin. You know, there's, there's this quote in the Bitcoin Genesis block, right? Uh, the British chancellor on the brink of a second bailout for banks. Yep. Um, and, you know, I was, uh, I used to trade stocks a bit, uh, and generally try to keep in mind the idea that you were trying to achieve a, a real return, which means a return above the actual rate of inflation. And you never quite know what the real inflation rate is. Governments tend to manipulate it and so on. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, it's 15 years, I just saw that, uh, talked about on the social media since the Bitcoin paper was published. And um, and the, the 2008 was the financial crash that people were, who were, you know, looking at the market at that time, kind of just slipped through when Bitcoin first appeared on the market. And uh, here we are again, you know, it's a kind of similar situation in a lot of ways. The world is in a fair degree of uh, financial disarray. And even in the thing that, kind of kicked it off this time was COVID and a probable a massive overreaction to that, large amount of money printing, supply chain disruption, now some geopolitical strife going on. Um, yeah, so the last two years were kind of just kept giving in terms of all of the uh, sort of negative news flow, I guess, for financial markets. Um, so, and of course, the interesting thing now is that Bitcoin is getting a sort of gradually over time more acceptance and understanding from the conventional finance world. And so they're talking about Bitcoin on financial news shows, their top management and sort of like economics analysts are commenting more favorably. And I think it takes sort of traditional well, people quite a while to take some new technology seriously. So and that's finally starting to happen, I think, uh, particularly with the current round of major U.S. financial institutions trying to get a spot ETF passed. And you know, many of them offering Bitcoin-related uh, financial products to their clients due to demand, basically. So interesting timing for what's happening in the with bonds 
Um, so, you know, with the, with the interest rates rising, I saw in the news that uh, some, I think it was UK pension funds, which sort of manage long-term capital for people's retirement plans, were down 50% because they were hugely exposed to long-term government bonds and the interest rates went up, you know, faster than anybody ever expected them to. Um, and that has an implication. So, you know, anybody who was expecting to retire based on that now has a problem. Yeah, uh, very well said. I, of course, this, this week did mark the 15th anniversary of the publishing of the Bitcoin white paper. I, I, some folks pointed this out, but there was on the same day, the, the actual day of the, the anniversary, that was the day that the Bank of Japan actually abandoned their 1% yield curve control hard cap, which was uh, just a funny little, you know, you mentioned sort of this historical idea of the, uh, the inscription on the, the Genesis block for Bitcoin. And, you know, we keep kind of getting these little things that even in today's day and age, the, the entities, the institutions are different, the countries are different, but this idea of money printing uh, is still the same. And in fact, if there's anything, maybe perhaps the most significant difference is just the sheer raw amount where it actually hasn't gotten better, it seems to be almost exponentially compounding uh, and getting yeah. much and much worse. Well, the US national debt clock's going to need another digit soon, right? It's like a <laughs> or something. Yeah, slap another zero on there. Um, but I, I think you point out a really interesting connection between uh, Bitcoin and bonds specifically. So long-dated long dated debt, but even the treasuries, which has been historically one of the safest places to park your, your capital, you know, TLT, which is a, an ETF that trades here in the, in the U S that is a, is long bonds. So I think it's just 20 and 30 year, maybe a 10 year in there as well. I saw a, a statistic the other day that it was actually down more peak to trough than the stock market was during the great financial crisis. So the wipeout in government bonds, which are supposed to be you know, extremely, the, the safest place to park your money has been uh, truly a sight to behold. I guess my question to you, Adam, is do you see, do you see a situation where global investors start to lose some confidence eventually in the bond market, especially if governments keep relying on this extreme supply of, of bonds to finance their fiscal deficits and maybe find their way into Bitcoin? Or what is the relationship do you see there uh, between bonds and Bitcoin? Well, yeah, I mean, I think some of the Traditional conservative, like long-term fund management strategies, like the 60-40 portfolio with percent bonds, are, are struggling. Right, that that was the safer component of it, and it turned out to be the worst component of it, at least for the moment. So, I think, you know, it's it's a, a potential opening for them to rethink that kind of rule of thumb strategy. And add some Bitcoin allocation as a kind of store of long-term store of value, right? So with with a growth story. So I mean, gold, of course, has um, kind of sometimes a small allocation in portfolios, but it's just primarily as a hedge, but doesn't doesn't really tend to grow. Whereas Bitcoin is still in the early in the adoption phase. So I think there's more adoption upside ahead of us, unlike gold. So one thing I, I wanted to to get your thoughts on is I think one thing that might be slightly different 
this time as the price of Bitcoin starts to pick up, you start to see the beginnings of uh, beginnings of excitement again for the first time in a while. Obviously, a good portion of that is being driven by uh, the ETF, a spot ETF here in the United States, and specifically the iShares or the BlackRock ETF. I think in terms of date, we're waiting the next time where the SEC is due a, a response is January, and then the last one is March 15th, I believe is the last date. Uh, what what are your thoughts in general about the likes of a, a BlackRock ETF or Larry Fink going on CNBC and calling uh, digital crypto a flight to quality asset? I mean, is that something that excites you and sort of says, hey, I've been in this from the beginning and this feels like we're, we're making it here? Or are you, is your soul crushed a little bit because, you know, these are the institutions that we're supposed to be disrupting? Is What, do, what is your general thought when you see that sort of thing? Well, I mean, it, it, it has two sides to it, all right? So... You know, I think people are always a bit concerned about self-custody and storing your own keys, running your own full nodes, learning how to do that because it gives you the bearer's resistant quality. And of course, you know, some people are obviously holding their Bitcoin holdings on an exchange or in, in a custodian, like for an ETF other, in other places in the world. Um, and an ETF won't have that property clearly, you know. So if you are somehow uh, involved in some political activism or somehow have a situation where the government takes a dislike to you, and in Canada that turned out to be as much as donating to, you know, Canadian truckers who were protesting, then they just preemptively froze people's bank accounts. And I think people were pretty shocked to see that in a, you know, in a major kind of democratic country. So I think, you know, that's, that's something to bear in mind that a share portfolio or a bank account or a Bitcoin ETF has that kind of risk associated with it. Um, but at the same time, it's clearly hard for, you know, the average person, perhaps a bit older, less technically sophisticated, or just, you know, the IT backup risk of, of backing up uh, coin private keys and things like that. Um, so it does make it accessible to more people. And there are some um, sort of structural reasons why something like a mutual fund probably can't buy physical Bitcoin just due to regulations and laws. They're not allowed to even if they want to get an exposure. So their only current way would be, you know, probably one of these futures-based ETFs, which are quite inefficient. They have a lot of drag and slippage. So they lose they lose some of the money to the inefficiency. So I think from that perspective, it, it helps people get access. And I think the other way to look at it is, you know, the fundamental value of Bitcoin is, is the, you know, permissionless, bearer censorship resistant money. And so you, you, you know, you don't want too much of it to end up in these sort of custody-based systems of ownership. Um, but it, it you, you know, we should expect that investors who are not directly using Bitcoin for its properties are going to want to invest for the same reason that perhaps in the early internet, there were people who didn't really get it. You know, they could see that, that the internet was maybe exciting to some people, but they hadn't got it. But because it had a, a good growth curve, they would invest in some internet stocks, right? And so, you know, I think there's some of that going on, which... You know, it is what it is. Um, so, yeah, I, th I think it's sort of uh, some advantages and some risks. 
All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at BlockWorks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, BlockWorks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, so that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, et cetera, and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that's stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers in crypto doing these days? And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code MARGIN20. So click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. But one thing you've obviously seen quite a few cycles here. And for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, your, the inv- your invention of Hashcash back in 1997 was actually cited in the original Bitcoin white paper by Satoshi. Uh, so you've obviously been around for quite a while in, in Bitcoin. And those, for those who are maybe a little bit newer to the space and they're sort of looking at this from the perspective of this could be their first cycle, I, I would love to get your, your thoughts because it's, it is always funny to watch how narratives uh, sort of change and coalesce and get formed uh, around these sort of inflection points in markets. And one of the things that was, you know, you were hearing 12 or so months ago was something like, yeah, you know, we're never going to see a money printer like that again. Uh, you can, this is probably the last cycle for something like Bitcoin and it, it's not going to come back. And now you're starting to see a, a shift where the Black Rocks of the world, these big institutions are kind of actually for the first time looking to really embrace Bitcoin in a serious way. And I guess what I'm what I'm sort of asking you here is, I mean, A, do you see us being on the precipice of a new bull market? Uh, and if so, does that markedly change from past bull markets based on institutional participation? As more f- money flows into Bitcoin and the price is higher, it takes a larger scale of ongoing investment to push the price further. But contrary to people's kind of intuition, it doesn't, you know, if, if there are, you know, a certain number of new coins being produced every day, it doesn't mean that the price of those coins is literally the amount of money that has to flow in to cause the price to go up because it's all based on the margin, right? So, so the price is the equilibrium in the market and a lot of coins are cold stored. So, you know, one, you know, a million dollars in is probably going to push the, um, well, like say a bigger number, like a billion dollars of new capital coming in is probably going to do a lot more to the market cap than add a billion to it, right? So I, th- I think that the current market is a bit unusual, like it was held back by the last couple of years of events. So all the macro stuff we talked about, the COVID supply chain, geopolitical issues going on, and all the money printing, and then some insects of drama, you know, the DeFi failures, the FTX, which is resolved now. So perhaps that's a, a chapter that came behind us that you know, the uh, SBF has been found guilty 
Um, and so I think that based on previous cycles, metrics, I would have expected the Bitcoin price to be, you know, maybe $100,000 last year already. But the, all, all those headwinds perceptually set it back. And I think that, you know, the market is doesn't understand the new technology like Bitcoin very well at times. And so, you know, an asset that should actually be viewed as a, as a hedge against some of those risks was actually hurt by the risks because people are mis, misperceiving it, right? So anyway, so as, as those sort of risks are sort of taken on board and adapted for, and we have a bit of, uh, you know, positive news cycle for, uh, for some months, I think there's a prospect to get back to where we would otherwise have been potentially even before the halving next April. Um, and then, you know, of course, the typical uh, wisdom is that you get a price appreciation after the halving, maybe nine months, 18 months afterwards. And that's what's happened statistically in the past. But I think potentially both could happen. But, you know, yeah, Bitcoin is uh, volatile and does its own thing. So, We'll, we'll see what actually happens, but certainly um, there's a reasonable expectation to my mind that you know an ETF will get a spot ETF will get approved. Well, probably multiple of them, right? Because they're all seems to be equally valid applications uh, and from credible providers, and that that in itself could you know move the needle. And uh, that that's probably going to happen before the halving. Mm. So I just want to underscore that for listeners. And I, I was listening to another recent interviews of your interview of yours, Adam, where you talked about um, the potential of, you know, new all-time high, even maybe $100,000 Bitcoin by the halving. Um, so I guess is the, is the belief there that if I had to summarize your, your viewpoint, but they're not that I'm going to hold you to any sort of price target or anything like that. But if I had to summarize your, your viewpoint is that, Look, basically what happened at the end of November of last year with FTX was something that was endogenous and uh, unique to, to digital assets. Bitcoin got hurt more than it otherwise normally should have based on regular sort of cycle or cyclical dynamics. And you'd expect some sort of reversion to the mean where we actually recover to where Bitcoin should be, maybe from a more intrinsic value standpoint, a network effect standpoint, a you know, currency, more broader uh, global currency debasement standpoint. And that would actually pull up the time frame of the the price of appreciation of Bitcoin relative to the halving, which has been a big uh, cyclical catalyst uh, for, for Bitcoin historically. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it could, it could, you know, we could get a first stage recovery. I mean, of course, Bitcoin is already up over hundred percent this year, right? It's uh, yeah, right. closed. December 2022, at around 15,500, and now we're around 34,000, so it's already more than two times up. But I think there's a prospect to get to a new all-time high or 100,000 before the April halving, and then you know wait for the halving cycle to do its thing and see some further appreciation from there into later 2024 or 2025. Um, and I mean, you know, there were a number of metrics that are unusual about the last couple of years, apart from the, the factors that caused it, but just the sort of in sort of the um, financial metrics people construct. So one is the 200 week moving average, uh, exponential moving average, which uh, historically the price had never fallen below that. 
and it and it dipped below it, you know, a couple of times during this the COVID period, right? Which I think to me showed that, you know, these external factors had impacted Bitcoin, uh, maybe unre you know unreasonably in a way that didn't make sense ultimately once once it's shaken out in the market. I think one of the other uh, things that I wanted to ask you about outside of just directly owning something like like Bitcoin, either spot Bitcoin or through, God willing, uh, an ETF at some point is uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on the mining space and that'll transition into sort of this uh, this renaissance in Bitcoin block space that's that's happening. But um, you at Blockstream actually just released a, a very interesting new product, uh, BASIC. So Blockstream ASIC. Um, and I wanted to get uh, give a sense of listeners for, for what that what that product is and, and why you're investing in it. Yeah, so actually it, it arose organically, which is Blockstream is in the uh, hosting business. So we provide sort of co-location for uh, people who want to buy and put online thousands of miners, so larger customers. Um, and what we found is that they, because some, some of them were like, you know, a fund or something, they were new to Bitcoin and they'd make an economic decision like, okay, we want to do some mining which is, you know, which is cool. They're getting into a new sector. But then they would expect that, you know, they could wire us money and, and get the miners on in a month or something. And I'm like, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, they, they don't, the manufacturers don't have inventory because they don't have the capital to, you know, have billions of dollars of equipment sitting in a warehouse ready to ship like a company like Dell or Apple might, right? They've got a supply chain, they've got a lot of capital. They can have equipment ready to, ready to go. And the fact of the matter is that the the ASICs that go into the into the Bitcoin miners have you know a, f a five month manufacturing process minimum, right? So you you send money to the foundry, they make you some more wafers. You won't get them back for like five months, and then you've got to assemble into machine. So the minimum time between paying money and getting a miner in a kind of quiet period in the market would be six months. And then when it, when it gets busy, people start pre ordering. And then you might be looking at nine months, 12 months. And if you make a big order, you know, you might, they might say, well, you'll get your first machine in nine months, but they'll come in 12 batches for the 12 months following that. And so, so um, we ended up buying, you know, some imagery to be able to have a supply to sell to people. So then we, if they came and they decided, made a decision, we'd say, well, we don't have inventory, but we've got some more, the next batch coming in in two months time so we can start to get you online over you know the next three months or something um and because of that we ended up at the time buying them around uh, 25 dollars terahash it's a quiet time in the market i think the build costs probably around 20 dollars a terahash and uh, we ended up selling some for 60 and the price in the you know in the when the price went up to 65 and then 69,000, the the bitcoin price the price per terahash surged all the way up to 120 or even 130 dollars terahash, and so in, that was a sort of you know we we didn't buy them to speculate. We we bought them to solve a supply problem for our customers. But um, afterwards, we got to thinking, well, that's interesting. The swing, you know, the surge pricing in miners was actually a bigger move than the price of Bitcoin at the time. So if you look at it around that cycle, you could have actually bought them at the bottom using Bitcoin itself and sold them at the top and made a two times return in Bitcoin. Now, of course, that's, you know, uh, hindsight, right? But 
clearly there, there existed an opportunity there. And so we thought, well, let's, let's uh, you know, put that into a, into a fund strategy. And there is something, is, there's potentially an even better setup at the moment, which is that because of those big pre-orders in 2021, 2022, people continued to receive miners up to, you know, 2023. And they actually didn't plan far enough ahead to secure hosting to put them online. They, you know, they just bought the machines. There's a long lead time. And and what's happened is that there's a lot of inventory, which they call it uh, new on pallet. So they're still in their boxes. They're shrink, shrink wrapped, never opened, sitting on shipping pallets in warehouses. And there are, you know, we don't know how much, but I think quite a lot is the evidence of uh, miners like that. And that's, there's a secondary market where you can buy these miners. I've never, you know, they're brand new miners for, you know, 10 to $15 to hash. So even, you know, below the manufacturing costs that so the manufacturers wouldn't want to sell at those prices. And the people who have them are, you know, people who intended to mine with them. Some of the manufacturers have excess inventory and some people lent to miners and ended up repossessing them because they were the collateral. Um, and so, so that's one factor. That's, so until that inventory is used up, the, the miners are artificially cheap, like below cost. So that's, you know, when we did this before, we were paying, you know, manufacturer prices, right, with, with a margin. Now they're below cost. And then the other, the other interesting thing about the setup now is that the price is up over two times year to date, and yet the Bitcoin price, and yet the price of miners is actually down, like, gradually throughout the year to this 10 to 15. I think we started at the beginning of the year, you know, more like 15 to 20. So, you know, that presents more upside. The the higher Bitcoin prices, if you're buying with Bitcoin, your purchasing power is improved and the cost of the goods, the miners is down. So uh, we create, create this fund. Uh, the first series is closed. Uh, so we'll be putting that money to work and then we'll launch uh, a couple more series. Uh, the, the first one is European-based and international. So Luxembourg securitization is the top level. And that's available to Europeans and international Buyers, and then we have a U.S. structure coming, which will open up to the U.S. market, accredited investors, and another series for the international as well. Um, and of course, these these series will be slightly different economically because the Bitcoin price going in will be different, and the average price we're able to buy miners for will probably be different. And it's a, it's a one-off strategy fund, so we basically buy the miners, uh, store them in a bonded warehouse. We don't power them up because there's a premium for new miners. Used miners are very hard to sell. They command a much worse price. So people have a trust issue with knowing, you know, how worn they are, whether they were treated well. Take it, you're taking a real chance buying used miners, basically, especially when the new ones are relatively cheap, right? And then, you know, as 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 the inventory gets used up, there's an interesting effect, which is once all this excess inventory gets online, as people, you know, and you can see the hash rate going up, so it is gradually going online. Um, at some point, it, there'll be no inventory left and it will switch to needing to pre-order from manufacturers again, right? Manufacturers are not putting money to build inventory right now. They're probably still, many of them have still got excess inventory. So as soon as they receive orders, there's an automatic six-month wait. And so at that time, you know, we can say, well, you could pay the, min the manufacturer of 25 you could pay and wait six months or you could pay us 35 and take immediate delivery or something like that, right? And that 
that is something we've seen in the past. There was a time where it made economic sense to pay as much as $10 a terahash per month. You would get the miner early because that was the, you know, the value of the Bitcoins you've mined. That, that formula has changed a bit because the, you know, the price is different and the hash rate is different, but you can see there's a time value. And then I think the other point is, you know, as, as we get into the next cycle, you could get in a surge pricing situation again. So ultimately we'll, we'll sell the miners and then wind the series down, pay out the funds. The other unusual aspect of this fund is that it's, uh, it's on a Bitcoin basis. So the investors are investing using Bitcoin and there's no sort of performance fee unless you get, you know, more Bitcoin out than you put in. Um, and it's a, certainly a factor for sort of so-called crypto hedge funds that people really hate paying a performance fee on a price appreciation of Bitcoin because they can achieve that sitting in a cold wallet, right? So what, what we're saying is, you know, when you, when you put money in, if the price of Bitcoin is 34, 35,000, when you take it out, maybe it's 100, 200, we don't know, but we won't charge a performance fee for the, for the change in the Bitcoin price only for changing the amount of Bitcoin, you know, for an increase in the amount of Bitcoin paid out. And of course, there's also a management fee to cover overheads and, you know, the bonded warehouse fees and things like that. So in terms of, uh, in terms of the, the dynamics of mining in general, you, you referenced this a little bit, maybe in, in terms of why you might be getting some of these rigs at a, at a discount. But my sort of high-level understanding of mining is that there is more credit that was available to miners this last cycle than ever before. And there were a couple of big lenders, um, you know, without naming any names, they'd be they'd be names that many people listening to this podcast would probably know. And there was a situation I remember hearing about maybe 12 or 12 or so months, like about a year ago, something like that, where this was supposed to be a bad situation and some of the lenders were underwater and, and yada, yada. How did that whole situation end up resolving itself? How do you see the presence of credit uh, changing the dynamics in just the pricing of ASICs in the mining market in general moving forward? I view it as um, an indication of undercapitalization. So the Bitcoin industry, uh, the mining industry particularly, is, is undercapitalized. And so, you know, where a company like Dell or Tesla or Microsoft, I mean, sorry, Dell, Tesla, Apple, people making physical goods, they can get large amounts of capital to build an inventory from, you know, debt markets. And Bitcoin is viewed historically has been viewed as too novel for those kind of debt providers to provide. And so that's turned to, you know, so, so if they weren't able to raise capital from equity markets or, or normal debt markets, that they're still, they're still in need, right? They still need to build the imagery. They still need to get it online. And so they would just use some non-traditional methods. So they would, you know, borrow at margin lending rates. So the, the Bitcoin ecosystem interest rates are double digit because of a phenomena of uh, people trading on margin, like leverage trading Bitcoin or doing, taking out Bitcoin secured loans for personal reasons. And that that's the rate for that tends to be high because you know, the capital is coming from other users basically. And so you're sort of, you're, the market is, is like asking a user what interest rate they want to get paid before they will defer buying Bitcoin. And, you know, they'll get impatient and they'll buy Bitcoin so their money will disappear, right? So 
So it ends up being a high rate, you know, 15, 20% quite often, um, and, and even higher in a bull market. So that rate has then, you know, been picked up and used by lenders. And, and like, what, what's the collateral available? Well, it's Bitcoin or it's ASICs. And now the danger with that is, uh, you know, mar margin trading Bitcoin, Bitcoin is already volatile. So doing margin on top is risky. So, you know, I think it definitely contributed to the volatility in the market. You know, there would be um, liquidations of Bitcoin and public and private Bitcoin mining company, prop mining companies, like mining for themselves, not providing hosting to third parties, who would be selling Bitcoin in the market just to cover costs or to repay loans and things like that. So I think it, it exacerbated the, the downside in the market. Um, but, you know, I think they, they also didn't really, you know, didn't have enough capital to do nothing, right? They had to, they had to do something or there wouldn't have been enough hash rate. But, you know, as a result, they ever shot and that was expensive and probably contributed to the, to the down market for periods where, you know, some lenders would be liquidating or just people selling more Bitcoin to cover operating costs in a down market. So, so maybe to, to sum up this, this investment strategy from the, the basic standpoint is you're sort of observing this inefficiency in the market because there's a structure under capitalization for Bitcoin miners. You might expect this sort of under an overshoot uh, in terms of uh, getting rigs, like the, the price for rigs and demand for rigs to persist. And so you're generating, you're allowing investors to earn a Bitcoin on Bitcoin return by basically buying rigs when they're low, denominated in Bitcoin, and then selling them again when they're when they're high. Yeah, which is a I mean this this uh, that's right. And this this uh, fund is um, one shot, right? So it's not going to reinvest. It's going to you know buy the miners, warehouse them, sell them back, and then pay out the Bitcoin or wind down the fund. So it's not you know trying to time the market or do something short-term speculative it's a kind of one-shot thing and you know hopefully that liquidity that it adds to the market will be useful to the people who are you know struggling to sell uh miners when they need the liquidity as well right so it's um and the liquidity is you know bitcoin basis so i think part of the problem for this whole ecosystem is that the the people who own bitcoin like the uh individual Bitcoin investors tend to be, end up being very all in. And so the prospect of buying, you know, making an investment in this Bitcoin correlated using dollars, they're like, well, you know, I don't have any dollars. Um, but the prospect of putting a, you know, an allocation, like bearing in mind any strategy has risks into a fund that is, is paid using Bitcoin itself. That's something that people can more plausibly do. And so ultimately that indirectly helps. Uh, companies with inventory because it's a new buyer in this market to help sort of temporarily absorb some of the excess. One thing that I think has been relatively unique about this cycle, if you look at it, I could actually pull one up here in a second, but if you look at the chart of Bitcoin hash rate, it has just been absolutely up and to the right and and leading Bitcoin price, which is my my mental model for this was always that price moves first and then miners uh, will, will sort of scramble to bring hash rate online and and therefore hash rate sort of follows. But I've, it feels like we've seen a deviation there. Can you, do you have any thoughts yeah. on why that might be? 
Yeah, yeah, it's it's related to this oversupply. So I I completely agree. I mean, some some people have some, um, to my mind, novel idea that um, the you know the price is set by the hash rate, but I, uh, like like you said, it's it's the other way around. You know, the the hash rate follows the price. But what's happened this time is that a lot of miners bought uh, ASICs and weren't able to get them online very quickly. And so, you know, after they've already bought them, they're in a sunk cost situation. So, you know, they might be suffering regret and they wouldn't, you know, choose to buy if they hadn't already bought. But given that they have, and as long as turning them on or finding somewhere to host them, you know, makes a net return, like reduces their loss, um, they will do it. And so, you know, that's that's how you came to see the hash rate continues to go up for most most of the periods, even though you know, the Bitcoin price is pretty low, the mining profitability was pretty low. It was just that there's a lot of sunk cost activity to to clear out the inventory, right? What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. What do you think, Adam? I, you know, hash rate tends to get brought up around... Um, the, this topic of Bitcoin security. And this is where I want to transition maybe to a slightly more uh, technical part of the discussion around Bitcoin, Bitcoin block space, the security debate, et cetera. And, you know, one thing, one question that I had for you is I've gotten a lot of different answers on this, but how do you, for instance, how do you, when you view a chart like this of hash rate going online, does, is that one-to-one additional security for the network. And I guess something I've been trying to work out in my head, and frankly, I would love to get your thoughts on this as, as someone who I'm, I'm sure you've thought about this quite deeply, is, you know, what is the introduction of new, more efficient matri- uh, ASICs that are able to produce more hash rate for less dollars in? Does that make the network more secure? Because the way that I had always thought of it was really hash rate is a proxy that what it represents is the amount of collateral that you staked to the system in the form of the cost of the ASIC and the ongoing electricity costs and whatever other sort of like utilities or whatever you need to do to keep your, your miner, uh, your mining rig online. And so on the one hand, I could see cheaper, more efficient ASICs, like it makes the hash rate go up. But on the other hand, you have now, you know, sort of posted less collateral in a sense as well. So an attacker could, um, you know, purchase more of these cheap, more efficient ASICs and do something like that. You know what I mean? I, I, I sort of have a hard time. My, my brain gets into a pretzel pretty quickly thinking like this. But how do you think about the relationship between hash rate and network security? Yeah, I mean, I think there are two aspects to the cost structure. One is the capital investment, which is 
a commitment to the network security because, you know, people will spend quite a lot on a miner, you know, $10,000, $20,000 on an individual miner with, you know, 100 terahash plus. And that miner, if, if Bitcoin were to fail, that miner would basically be worthless, right? So you are really, uh, you know, you have a kind of affinity to wanting Bitcoin to succeed and continue and be secure and reliable and dependable. Um, and so there's, there's that commitment. Plus many miners are, you know, Bitcoin bulls, right? They try to keep as many coins as they can because the price goes up. Uh, you saw that in many of the public mining companies. They're trying to increase the number of coins that have an inventory over time. So I think the Bitcoin holding, the, you know, the ability to recover the capital investment, that's, that's uh, one part of it. And then the other part is, um, you know, the operating cost, right? So that is also a part of the security budget. So in terms of the miners sort of combined investment between the capital and the operating cost, they, they just have to, you know, get back more dollars than they put in. And then they'll try to get an additional upside by keeping as many coins as they can. You know, they may have to sell some to cover their power bills, right? Um, so then in terms of the minor efficiency, I think, um, you know, that's, that's a reason why the hash rate can go up faster than the security budget. I mean, if security budget is how much is being spent annually to secure the Bitcoin network between capital and electricity and so on, then the hash rate is actually going up a little faster because machines are getting faster every year. And so I think there are people who have started to refresh machines, like phase out less efficient ones or bring new ones online, and they are a bit more efficient. Uh, in, a, in a period where the profitability gets bad, also the, the less efficient miners will tend to switch off sooner. And many, many miners don't own their the hosting, the infrastructure, right? So if they stop mining, then somebody else will come in with newer miners. So um, I think, you know, a, a refresh to a new, more efficient miner at the moment is still a big commitment to the future because, you know, even though profitability has improved, you know, the, the price has gone up faster than the hash rate, right, this year. So the price has doubled, but the hash rate hasn't quite. So there's a bit, there's a bit of a profitability improvement, but it's still not, not a super high margin time to, to make a fresh mining investment. So people who are, you know, buying new, more efficient miners, put them online, they're taking a relatively long-term bet on, you know, the profitability improving, which is going to be driven by the price, right? Um, so I think, yeah, it's, it's a kind of, rolling recurring cycle of investment and operating uh, cost that is um, securing the network. One of the dynamics that I sort of remember, uh, you know, being relatively consistent, but I'm wondering if the, the persistent uh, availability of credit changes this for miners is typically minor capitulation marks the bottom. Of, of these sorts of cycles. So, you know, what you've seen in the past is, you know, if we had to you know, briefly describe the cycle, the price of Bitcoin goes up, miners chase that in terms of bringing, uh, bringing mining capacity online, the hash rate goes up, the price turns over, miners try to make it for as long and, and as, as far as they can. 
And there's some, there's like a little bit of nuance there in terms of cloud mining models where you know, people try to shut down their rigs and et cetera, et cetera. But then eventually there's this, this big capitulation, which is minor, minor sales of Bitcoin. And that tends to mark the, the bottom. But my question is, did, did that happen again this time? Were we able to stave some of that off because of the availability of, of credit and maybe rigs just change hands uh, into, you know, they're taken, repossessed by, by creditors or how, how do you see that dynamic? Um, still playing out into the future. Yeah. I mean, I think the credit probably made it worse because ah, interesting. it created some uh, liquidation scenarios where the lender, you know, had the borrowers, uh, Bitcoin as collateral to buy ASICs or the ASICs themselves. Right. And um, I think the credit has dried up significantly because there have been some major lender failures that are currently in bankruptcy or in disputes. Um, and there are lenders who are, you know, solvent, but have have losses on their books and own ASICs. So they've become, you know, they're either be looking to sell those or hold on to them for a better price or they start mining, you know, try to find someone to host the miners and um, try to recoup the loss by by mining the the ASICs that they ended up taking repossessing uh, from the collateral, the credit available at the time allowed people to go risk on more. That's really interesting. I thought, you know, because you could see in maybe one sense it allow you to extend some credit. You don't need to sell the bitcoins as well if if there are miners that are that are particularly disciplined. That then um, you could see that being a good thing. But you could see it going the other way as well. There's a lot of undisciplined new entrants that might not have that battle hardened, you know, many cycle sort of a uh, yeah. I mean, Focus. it probably worked for some people. You know, you you can see there's quite a variation in how the public mining companies, where you can look at their data, how well they fared through this, like how far their stock fell, how quickly it recovered. You know, their debt ratio. Uh, there are a few that entered bankruptcy that looked to be, you know, able to, you know, get back on track and get out of bankruptcy. Some of them that may not make it. Um, but ultimately, it's all part of the economic cycle. So, you know, all of the ASICs that were manufactured presumably will eventually get online because, you know, somebody, whether it's the creditor or a new buyer, you know, some people are buying on the secondary and then putting them online and having a lower cost purchase. Last question for you on this area of security would be, you know, people people uh, have a lot of thoughts about sort of the long-term uh, viability of the Bitcoin security model, which would be, you know, to summarize for folks who might not be as in the weeds on this, is the Bitcoin obviously has the 21 million hard cap supply. There are two types of, uh, two methods by which miners get compensated. One is a, a block reward, um, which is paid to miners that are able to uh, mine a block and that programmatically goes down. It's adjusted down by half every every four years, which is the the halving. And then there are transaction uh, there are transaction fees as well, whereby miners get paid by um, you know accepting sort of priority fees uh, for for various transactions. And um, the the majority today of the way that miners get compensated is from the block subsidy, which is decreasing over time. And transactions might not have uh, ramped as um, as much as some some folks would have liked. And the question is like, are is the transaction fees alone? going to be enough to to pay for the miners and, and all their efforts in securing the network going forward. So long-term, and how do you answer or think about that that debate? Yeah, um, I mean, what, what we've seen is that 
the fees tend to go up the most in a in a bull market, um, and that is basically traders. So the traders tend to be the most impatient, and they don't really, you know, if if they pay ten dollars a fee rather than ten cents or one dollar, they don't care that much because, you know, if they're doing the trades in the tens or hundreds of thousands, they're trade commission will be you know, maybe 10 or 20 basis points, which is a lot more than the transaction fees. So they would sooner pay more and get their transaction, you know, their coins moved between exchanges. Um, so they tend to push the, pro- the fees up. But I think um, the, the other thing when people talk about this, I think it's actually, you know, we've got a lot more time to see how it develops than people may be thinking because People are always looking in the moment, right? But you know, the historic fact is that Bitcoin has doubled every year for a decade, right? And so they'll think, oh no, you know, there's a halving, the number of coins is halved. Yeah, okay. But it also went up 16 times in the same period, right? So effectively, the mining uh, reward or the amount of revenue going into mining is is uh, going up by a factor of eight every four years and has done for the last decade and probably well for the following decade. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even if it tapered off, so it wasn't, you know, eight times, it's still a very high multiple in security budget. So if anything, the security budget is probably larger than yeah. it needs to be. So there's a lot of headroom. Um, and you know there seems to be like quite a bit of headroom in terms of Bitcoin's potential adoption as an asset class. So I, th- I think it's like not a short-term problem. And also, you know, the fees have uh, have got you know become higher a higher percentage over time. Um, now, you know, some layer two things do sort of reduce fees. So people doing retail payments on Lightning took some of the pressure off the main chain because it still flows through to the main chain because they have to open channels and they'll be converting backwards and forwards. But, you know, I think all the different layer twos effectively create more transaction capacity for different specialized for different use cases. And it's a supply and demand thing, right? So if there's, if there's more supply, then it will re- sort of reduce the fee cost but also, I think it's it's healthy because, you know, people who do, you know, do trading on liquid and micropayments and retail payments on Lightning, they free up space for people to do cold storage and sensor-resistant transactions on the main chain to make space for more users to adopt Bitcoin for, you know, for what it ultimately is best for. Um, so I think, you know, it's also giving the capacity to expand a user base. Yeah, I, I that very well said. Well, one thing that I, I wanted to, maybe we can end our conversation here and, and get in even a little bit more technical detail than we've, we've discussed so far, just talk a little bit about Bitcoin block space is, you know, the, the other solution that has been put forth, which I think has been a little bit controversial is alternative uses for Bitcoin block space, uh, which I know is a very longstanding debate. So that would be something around ordinals. And for those of you who, are listening and are not familiar with ordinals, ordinals would be, they're sort of a, a Bitcoin native form of NFTs, wherein um, 
uh, unspent. I, I'm a little out of my zone here, but I think it's uh, UTXO is arranged in a certain way. Almost, uh, it they you can inscribe a, a a picture to them, and this was made possible by the recent Taproot upgrade. Uh, so there was kind of a a little bit of a depending on how you look at it, a new way to use the block space or a little bit of a loophole in the upgrade, which allowed uh, the proliferation of these uh, of these ordinal uh, NFTs on the Bitcoin blockchain, and I think that might have uh, catalyzed sort of a, a renewed look at, at Bitcoin block space from the perspective of like the BitVM. Layer twos have obviously been going on for a long time, uh, drive chains, et cetera. And uh, I, I guess just to start from a high level, Adam, which camp do you sort of fall in in that, look, you know, Bitcoin should really be used for financial transactions. That's what it's best at. And and that's probably the, the right way to look at this. Or or do you fall more in the camp of like, well, look, if the code says that it's a, it's a possible thing to do, then the, the code is ultimately what we should be going by here. And people want to use the block space for this. I'm not a huge fan of it, but, you know, I guess it is driving up transaction revenue. So. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, uh, well, it, it certainly changed the narrative there a bit so that mm. the, um, you know, the security concern which people oscillate between you know, the long-term sort of, financial security budget. They're like, well, no problem. People are paying lots of money, you know, hundreds of dollars to store a uh, JPEG in the in a blockchain, right? And <laughs> right. that's that's all very funny. And, and of course the other ironic thing is, you know, you people some people are annoyed by it, but like you can't do anything about it because Bitcoin's censorship resistance, uh, you know, by definition it's it's a a free market thing and people will do whatever they whatever they want to do. And um I think the the unfortunate thing is that you know each of the JPEGs are like a hundred kilobytes or something would displace you know hundreds of UTXOs from being created that were financially relevant and so you know maybe that would price out some people in emerging markets from being able to cold store their Bitcoin and they'd have to use a custodian or something in exchange right so. You know, the block space is limited and the free market, you know, is is great and all, but it does mean that the people that can spend the most or, you know, can afford the fees will do it. And so if if the Bitcoin blockchain is basically being too heavily used by, you know, rich digital art collectors, that's uh, possibly problematic for emerging market, you know, cold storage and censorship resistant transactions right but um i think the other the other factor that people hadn't seen coming is that um bitcoin is sort of adaptive based on you know a combination of users how they behave in the market and the technology providers who who build workarounds and so you know it actually made bitcoin more scalable and and the the fad passed a bit as right people got bored of it after a while but uh, one example of how this played out was there's um, a sort of trustless atomic swap, it's called a submarine swap between Bitcoin UTXO and Lightning Capacity. So there's a company called Bolts, it's Bolts HQ on Twitter, and uh, they have this kind of trustless swap, and and the the ordinals and the inscriptions basically broke the swap. It stopped working because the fees were too unpredictable and too expensive. And that's a problem, right? They can't do their main business, line of business. So they got busy and within the space of a week or so, they'd implemented a swap 
between a liquid Bitcoin, so a different layer two, and lightning channel capacity. So you've got a main chain lightning channel capacity, and you could add or remove you know, Bitcoin from your channel capacity without doing an on-chain fee. And so, you know, the the inscriptions basically made economic conditions which forced that to happen. And the interesting thing is, even though the fees have dropped and, you know, the, the inscriptions have become less popular, the um, Bolts HQ liquid adoption remains. And, you know, it's like 60% of their trade volume now. So it's actually more than the on-chain swaps because the people that adopted it sort of, you know, they're like, well, it's it's cheaper and faster, so let's keep doing it, right? So um, while their overall metrics are growing, like, you know, more people are using their product over time, the percentage that is happening on Liquid remains higher than on the main chain swap now. So, you know, that just shows that the the market reacts to, it's it's not inelastic, basically, right? So, so if something happens that makes things inconvenient or costly, you know, different startups and technologists will figure out a workaround and whatever works best will get adopted. And then that the network will be, you know, a little bit higher capacity, a little bit more resilient until the next thing causes a, another fee surge, right? And then presumably there'll be another reaction that will, you know, add some more capacity. Mm. All right. Maybe in, in closing here, because you're referencing lightning a little bit, and I know, uh, and Blockstream has been busy releasing all these new products, but you have a very interesting new uh, uh, solution called Greenlight. Uh, so could, could you just give listeners sort of a review of, of what the Lightning uh, channel sort of is? Uh, refresh us a little bit about, on how adoption is, is going over there and your sort of vision for layer twos on, on Bitcoin. And then maybe we can end just talking about uh, Greenlight. Start by saying that every Lightning transaction is actually still a Bitcoin transaction. It's just that it's constructed in a way that you can sort of just wait, you know, you'll, you'll get a payment and you won't send it to the main chain. You'll just hold on to it and it will get replaced when there's another payment. And so you have this pattern where there's one transaction on the chain which is to set up the Lightning Channel and then there will be... Um, you know, hundreds or thousands of small retail transactions paid via or routed through Lightning nodes. And so you get a kind of multiplier effect where you can do more kind of financial activity per actual on-chain transaction. Um, and so, you know, there are a few different uh, models for doing that. Some of them are custodial. So I think uh, the data points somebody put out in a research report was about 50% of uh, the Lightning wallet by usage is actually custodial, but you know it's still it's still a Lightning compatible transaction. And the others are non-custodial. And the non-custodial ones, there are a few different implementations of libraries and wallets that make that convenient. But ultimately, they're doing quite a bit of clever work in the wallets and in the libraries to make that work because it's quite it, you know it's a lot for a smartphone to do basically to you know sync with the gossip information. Uh, stay online to receive transactions and keep up to date. In some cases, they have a full node. So they'll sync up to the chain again and keep this node operating on the phone. So what Greenlight does is it's a bit more like, so, so if you think about with the main chain, 
a lot of these wallets are a bit like a full node, but for Lightning, right? You know, like mm. a full node wallet for like Bitcoin QT or something. Um, and but another way to use the main chain is the hardware wallet. And so the hardware wallet provides a you know very high security assurance, but doesn't know a lot about what's happening on the chain. It, it's not aware of. It doesn't receive a blockchain. You just send it a proposal. I want to pay this address, this much Bitcoin, and these are the UTXOs that you claim you own. And the hardware wallet will just enforce a few simple things. You know that the amount you pay is what you think, and that the address that you expect to receive it is the one that receives it, and that the change goes back to yourself. But it doesn't actually know if you actually own that UTXO or even if that UTXO exists, right? Because it doesn't have a view of the network. But it turns out to be secure to do that because the network and the receiver will verify it and assure it. So Greenlight kind of has that hardware wallet-like model, but for Lightning. So it's, you know, the the integration into a smartphone application or in a wallet is very lightweight. It just, you know, you give it instructions about how much you want to pay and who you want to pay. And there's a node, you know, a Lightning node running on the cloud that will give you the information to sign and verify. And so the advantage is that it's much more lightweight. It doesn't have to receive as much data. It doesn't have to sync when you come back online. So it gives a kind of, you know, efficient, lightweight experience, easier to write a hot, you know, a software wallet. And uh, there are some wallets that are integrating Greenlight as the way to interact mm. with the Lightning Network. Uh, Breeze is one of them. And there are a few more in the works. Um, and it's also potentially convenient for applications that are not themselves wallets that want to add the ability to pay with Lightning, like a Nostra application or a game or something, because you know, integrating a full Lightning wallet as an embedded app inside a game is kind of heavy, right? Whereas calling the green light APIs is much more lightweight and easy to do. Awesome. Um, I think that's uh, that's probably a good place to, to end it here, Adam. And um, guys, I highly recommend that you go check out uh, some of the things that we were talking about, uh, Basic, uh, Greenlight, if you're a, a Lightning user. Um, Adam, what's the, I really appreciate you coming on here. What is the best way either to find out more information about uh, Blockstream, Basic, any of the stuff that we talked about, follow you, uh, et cetera? Yeah, if you, for Blockstream in general, it's uh, blockstream.com. And there is a uh, blockstream.finance has information about the financial products there. Uh, the regulatory work is done by Stoker, which is S-T-O-K-R.io. It's a Luxembourg company. Um, so they have information about the products as well. Excellent. Adam, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. We'll have to do it again soon. All right. Thank you. Cheers.